quiver's full of hope. I've got the urge to walk the prairie and chase the antelope. Aspen's gold on snow-capped peaks, the elk call me away. I can't keep my mind on working on this fine September day. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name. My eyes are on the target, broadheads all fly true. Can't wait till I can get outside so I can fling a few. Welcome back to the Track Quest Podcast. James Orr and Bob the Bowhunter Borland. What's going on, brother? Oh, we're just uh, got international hunting on our mind right now, that's for sure. International hunting down under, mate. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, we just did an awesome episode. You guys are going to enjoy this one with uh, Mr. Matt Webb from Matt Webb's Wild Harvest. He is a hunt machine down there, down under land for sure and you guys go look at his youtube videos and stuff before you listen to this uh and you'll get a picture of what what he's talking about on here it's just some cool country he lives in he gets to hunt all kinds of cool animals and we dove into a lot of the hunting and kind of little just intro to you guys of what species are over there and how the seasons or no seasons work and and we dove into shooting a little bit and all that stuff. So that was great. Yeah. He's such a good dude. Great guy. Matt, Matt is my kind of people's man. I just feel like really connected to him. Um, his philosophy on life and bow hunting and uh, his respect for the animals is uh, second to none. Um, so he's a guy that I hope to definitely be bringing back on. And he's a guy that uh, I hope that we're going to get a chance to meet in person uh, and share a campfire and some bow hunting together with in the, in the hopefully in the near future. Heck yeah, he's a good dude, that's for sure. And uh, he makes a sweet bush vest. We talked about that a little bit, but not much. We didn't really plug him much the whole time. We are too busy talking, so uh, we'll try to help him out on the intro here. But yeah, if you guys go to his Facebook or Instagram um, and you want one of those things, shoot him a message and he'll get you measured up. And they're, uh, it, they're all they're, trad vests. That's for sure. Wool. All, plaid. Yeah. 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 His wife makes them. He, uh, basically designed them for bow hunting. They scream traditional bow hunting. When you see those vests, they are awesome. I'm definitely planning on getting one myself. Um, he is just, he's living the dream over there down under, uh, bow hunting all the time. He's a guy that has uh, a wealth of knowledge and, and experience that he can speak from because he's doing it basically full time, which is really cool. Yeah, for sure. And, and you know, the you know we we hunt all season for one or two opportunities, and we're lucky to take more than one big game animal a year. You know, us trad guys out west here, um, and he gets to. I don't even know. He probably can even count. You know, he's out there doing it every day. So we didn't get all of his his tactics and tips out there. We're gonna have to definitely get him back on to dive into all that stuff because, um, yeah, the, the guy's definitely getting it done all the time over there. Yeah, and he's hunting with Labradors, and I think you guys are gonna find it really intriguing, like I did. 
And once again, you know, send us an email if there's something that we missed, because we're definitely going to be bringing this guy back on. Um, we're, our email is tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys. Um, also, just, you know, kind of want to bring up our Patreon thing. Um, we're kind of doing that instead of commercials. And so if you guys uh, don't know what Patreon is, um, it's a way that you can support the podcast through a monthly donation. Um, you can find that link on our Instagram page uh, at our bio, or you can also uh, find that on our website. And you can go over there and uh, make a donation. And if you don't want to do a uh, monthly donation, you can send us a donation over on our PayPal account, which is available on our website, tradquest.com. Yeah, it'll be on that same page on our website. Just under there, it says got a little PayPal symbol and it says donate. So you can hit that one and you can also donate monthly on there too. But if you uh, want all the goods that we're going to be ha- having for our monthly guys, it's going to be specific to the Patreon page because we can post stuff on that page separate and not have to go to the website all the time. So hit those links. We're going to introduce some, some uh, more incentives for our Patreon supporters. Um, you'll see something saying a uh, silver level and gold level discounts. We're going to be working with uh, the companies that support us and the companies that we believe in and, and try to uh, pass on some discounts on the products you guys are already buying uh, for your trad quest. So we're going to try to get you guys discounts on bows and arrows and broadheads and gear and all those things that you guys are already obtaining and try to make it a little easier on you guys. And if you're a company that you're listening to this and you want to be involved uh, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email. We'd love to uh, forward some of these discounts and drive business towards your business. Um, so any way we can help enriching – I don't know if – is that a word, enriching? No, it's probably a, not a word. That's a Coos County word for sure. Enrich. Coos County word. Enrich. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> if we can find a way to enrich the traditional archery community as a whole, uh, let us know because that's what this is all about for us. For sure. Okay, so we're going to do a uh, podcast giveaway. Um, you know, we're not going to probably be able to do these on every podcast, but we're going to try to do them as often as possible, and that all depends on the donations we get. But today we are going to be giving away a collectible 10 from Bear Archery. It's a Fred Bear 10. It's got a uh, Bear Archery coin with a Fred Bear pocket knife. Sweet. I haven't even seen that. James has been hoarding that at his place. We got two of those to give away. So we'll give one of those away today. We'll give another one away on a future podcast. All right. Well. So thank you, Bear Archery. We appreciate the donation, and we appreciate all the Patreon members who have signed up to date. And Bob's going to drum roll. Reach into the the hat because we got to get all these names on some fancy app thing. Because we're just going old school here. I got Paul Newman. Paul E. Newman. Paul E. Newman. Okay, Paul. Sweet bear pocket knife. We'll send Paul Paul an email and we'll get his uh, bear archery collectible 10 pocket knife coin set out to him. We appreciate uh, all the support we've been getting from everyone, and we hope you enjoy this awesome podcast from Down Under.
Hello. Thank you for getting up so early for us this morning. <laughs> How you going? I can't see you. I've got a black screen. I'm not sure if you're there. Can you hear me? Yeah. We usually don't run the video because we get, it seems to slow, uh, slow it up a little bit. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. No worries. Well, if you, if you could see me, I'd be under a nice warm blanket eating a piece of toast and drinking a coffee. So there you go. <laughs> oh, all right. And it's, uh, it's, Four four thirty there in the morning. Yeah, you know you've got a real problem. You know when you when you agree to get up at four thirty in the morning and talk with someone about a uh, a bow and arrow. You know, like uh, <laughs> you got it pretty bad. <laughs> For sure. Well, we appreciate it, man. That's we have some crazy schedules right now, so we appreciate it. Yeah, nine thirty over there right now. Is that right? Yeah, nine forty. Yeah. Well, that's a little more civilized, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just uh, I'm gonna pre- daughters in preschool window here. So, oh, like, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Good stuff. So I mean, if you guys got bow hunting year round, you could be out bow hunting soon, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yep. Five o'clock. Five five thirty. Starts getting a, the sun starts to uh, poke its head up, and yeah, get out there and get it done. It's awesome. I would I, I would have never gotten married. <laughs> well, you still got to eat and drink and sleep, so you know, <laughs> it's important things. Yeah, that would be tough to get anything done if you could hunt every day. I man, I couldn't imagine. Oh, look, yeah, the opportunities are huge over here. It's um, it's pretty cool, really cool. We we seem to try to find a way to hunt like you know, springs every season we can possibly find. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how I would manage that because I would just become a nomad. I'd just be out there <laughs> yeah. living out of my yeah. backpack. Well, it looks like that's what Matt does pretty much. Yeah, well, yeah, I got a, I've got a problem, like I said. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good problem to have, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah heck yeah. Well, why don't we uh, just get into uh, kind of who you are and – how uh how you uh ended up with this sickness yeah that sounds good when did you start bow hunting matt and how did it come about were were parents or dad teach you or how did how did it start yeah i the first uh first time i come into contact with a bow was when i was about 14 i didn't have any parents hunting or um any sort of influence outside influence and in fact i sort of grew up in pretty extreme environment up here in the uh, victorian high country with my mother so just a single parent family so no you know no one really pushing me into it but being uh, in that environment sort of leads you to the outdoors and just uh, owning a bow uh, was something that was sort of by accident and it just come, came to me. I uh, just started shooting a bow and enjoying what I could take from the land. I'd already sort of immersed myself into fishing and anything that I could do as a young sort of fella. And, yeah, the bow just uh, was something that I gravitated to uh, by accident, to be honest. But once I started, it was pretty hard to, to put down. And that's a, a fair while ago now I'm 
just over 40. So it's uh, been, you know, been something that's been a part of my life for a long time. I must admit, you know, it's not, uh, I wouldn't like to say that, you know, for the last 20 or more years, that's all I've thought about. It's been rather recent, this obsession that I have with traditional bow hunting. It's been a more recent thing, but just owning a bow has always been uh, part of my hunting life, you could say. Uh, I was able to take a few quality animals earlier on as a as a young man, and uh, it's sort of just been something that stuck with me. So having... How does it work over there in Australia? You guys can hunt year-round, but is there licenses and tags and bag limits? And how is that controlled, or is it? It isn't really controlled. Uh, the hunting is sort of uh, narrowed down to a, a game license. So if you want to hunt deer, well, you've got to go out and pay a small fee, a yearly fee, uh, around sort of 30 or 40 Australian dollars a year, uh, something like that, and you, you've got your license to go hunt game species. And, you know, when it comes to feral animals, which is a large part of what Australia is in regard to hunting, well, you can, I think there's a, another ticket you can get there as well. Uh, ten, I think 10 Australian dollars buys you a, a, a ticket that allows you to hunt animals on public land, uh, feral animals on public land, but Majority of people may not even go down that road in Australia. They might just hunt on private property and you don't need any permission. There is no season. Uh, we've got anything that walks on four legs over here in Australia. It seems to be the way it is uh, in regard to game. And I think for a long time, Australia had one of those weird policies where if we had an issue with an animal like a, a rabbit or something like that, the answer to getting rid of the numbers was just to bring in a bigger predator with longer teeth, you know. So, it's, you know, these days you see uh, all sorts of animals around Australia and, and yeah, the, the, the legal side of things with hunting is, uh, isn't, you know, isn't really narrowed down to a season or a tag or anything like that. So you had brought up anything with uh, the walks on four legs, you guys have the <laughs> kangaroos over there. Are you hunting those well, or? No, no. Well, they're on our, we, they're on our national coat of arms. So you don't, you basically don't go anywhere near a kangaroo. Although they are harvested for their their meat over here because their numbers are just ridiculous. Like even here in my local territory, there's just kangaroos everywhere. People hit them with cars all the time. But the the measures are to control them uh, are uh, thought of a lot differently to anything that's invasive or or feral to Australia. So no, you can't hunt kangaroos. That's not something you can do. Uh, it's it's basically just uh, left to those who are doing it on a professional level for harvesting. So. I see. So what what are animals? In the deer species, are you hunting that are native to Australia, and which ones are invasive? So we have no we have no native deer species that are technically native. Uh, although samba, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of samba deer, but samba deer are 
really uh, thought of in Australia as, I mean, they were here for for a long time and because they've done so well here as far as a, adapting to our climate and our mountains, they're often thought of by people as uh, being a part of Australia. But we have no, we have absolutely no deer species that uh, were originally here in Australia. So when it comes to uh, nearly all of the deer species, you can hunt them uh, all, nearly all year. And, you know, they're, they're looked on as a pest, to be honest with you, in Australia by the Australian government. And, you know, they're a nice, um, they're a beautiful animal, though, to have, have here in Australia. I think they're just, you know, being a hunter, you always uh, favour all your deer species. But we've got fallow deer, samba deer, hog deer, uh, rusa, Chittle, which I think you guys would call Axis, uh, Axis yep. deer, and uh, obviously red deer as well, are pretty uh, well spread out through Australia. Uh, so there's there's quite a few species of deer here, but most of them have have made their way uh, through Australia through deer farming, uh, either deer farms that have gone broke and let their deer go, they just let them open the gates and and let the deer run out and into the bush or uh, they've been brought over for hunting purposes a long time ago. Yeah, we have some of that here. A lot of a lot of people in Oregon don't realize, but uh, in the county I live in, there's a small area um, that has access deer and fallow deer, um, pretty good population of them, but they seem to stay on private property. And so when I drive out that way, I can see those deer uh, running through those ranches, but we don't get to hunt them because they're, they don't really come on to public, but beautiful animals. Yeah. I didn't realize you guys had fallow deer over there. That's, that's awesome. We're yeah. pretty, pr- pretty proud of the, you know, and New Zealanders are pretty proud of their fallow deer. They're a special animal to hunt. Yeah. I, it's a small, it, it's, it's in an area, uh, broad Benton powers in Coos County where I live in, it's some giant ranches that basically what you said, some people back in the seventies or sometime were raising them. And then a law came about where they couldn't raise them no more. So they just opened their gates and let them free. And yeah. so the populations are there, but you, they can't charge people to hunt them and the state would like them eradicated, but they're on private property. So they're just running free and, the people who own the properties enjoy having them. Yeah, well, over here we have huge, massive areas of land and what we call state forest land, and it's just uh, most of the deer that you see in Australia come from that source. Especially when it comes to fallow deer, they just they were they were big over here in Australia at one time. Venison and you know other uh, even the velvet off the antler was really popular and for a period of time and people were able to make money off the deer so they invested in them and then the whole market just the the bottom end just fell right out of it so the result was they let let the gates open the gates and let the deer go and uh, now we have fellow deer spread all over australia especially the southern part of australia what did they do with the velvet yeah apparently it's um it's quite a quite an amazing process actually and a little bit brutal really but they just strip the velvet off the the antler it's quite a uh 
quite an amazing way they do it and they send it overseas and I think it's used for uh, used in different medicines and all sorts of forms but it's funny now I've got a good friend who owns a deer farm and you go there and just see what their main production is and I'd like to think that you know they're in there using um, the animals in some way for the venison and the meat you, that's what you would that's what you would automatically think in a deer farm but it's a lot of the profit is coming from the antler believe it or not now whether it be ground down cut up into uh, into pieces and used even for something like dog chews you know right. like it's just it's amazing the whole the whole industry is is really shut down when it comes to the meat side of things they're they're a difficult animal for farmers to handle and i think that's played a big part but also too there's a you know a perception that deer meat is either gamey or whatever and they just don't seem to do as well when it comes to the marketing the meat from the animal which is quite wow. strange but is the way it is very strange very strange so when you talk about public lands and private, what is the percentage of public to private that you are uh, hunting on that it's available, you know, for your uh, for the people to hunt? Yeah, I reckon probably close to I reckon forty percent of my hunting is on private property, maybe um, so close to half. You know, we've just got so much public land over here and so much opportunity. If you're willing, if you're willing to get out there, maybe walk a little further than the average person, you're going to be rewarded pretty well. And, you know, from a deer hunting perspective, the deer, uh, like I said, spread right out. So often hunters over here will have their own little pocket or own area where they're, where they frequent and they get out and they, you know, try and, uh, learn and get to know that area and what deer they've got in that area and they'll hunt that pretty much predominantly and you know it's often uh often said you know over here about talking about sharing spots and or keeping a spot for yourself it's not so much related to not so much related to private land you know you can the the public land over here is so big that you can you can pick an area um and develop a you know a good pattern of hunting in that area and and keep it to yourself to a reasonable degree you might come across the odd hunter here and there that's passing through or has the same idea as you but we've just got so much land here in australia it's uh, easy to to focus your attention on public land and still do well yeah i i hunt predominantly public or timber company land which is like you know uh where they're producing trees and you pay to get on those lands, but it doesn't seem to matter where you're hunting. Our seasons are so controlled that hunting pressure is inevitable. It sounds like you guys are able to kind of get away from the pressure with the long durations of time to hunt. Um, but I would imagine when the animals are uh, in rut would be a more popular time for uh, bow hunters to get a field. Is that the case? Well, I mean, the, the you know it's easier to hunt an animal in the rut you you can you know whether you're calling an animal in like you guys do with your elk which is pretty cool by the way 
<laughs> it looks awesome. Uh, you know, you can call a fellow deer in uh, a buck in during the rut, and that draw that's a draw card for people. They feel that you know they've got more chance of getting it done through the rut. Uh, but hunting pressure is related to you know the area that you're hunting. There's, like I said, you know, if you're going to hunt, I don't know, a couple of kilometres out of your local town, yeah, you're going to come across people. You're going to come across rifle hunters. You're going to come across other bow hunters. You don't have to work too hard to get away from that, whether it's uh, the rut or not. You know, you can get into an area that's really uh, secluded. And because of the, the spread of the animals, the spread of the deer in Australia, you can you know often find uh, a good pocket of, of quality animals well away from everyone else. Saying that, it seems to be the norm that um, the inexperienced hunters struggle with that concept, you know, of getting out and away. And I guess for them, they probably would hear me say something like that and think, well, you know, like I can't find a place to hunt or I'm sort of pinned down with, with uh, you know, hunting pressure where I am. But, you know, if you're into hunting in a big way like we are, uh, you're willing to put a backpack on, get get away from it all. The, the world's really your oyster, so to speak, as far as you know, hunting here in Australia. You're not going to have any pressure at all. Yeah, w- watching your YouTube videos, um, which I'm guilty to not getting a lot of time, uh, screen time, so I'm not going to watch a lot of YouTube. But checking yours out, it, it looks a lot different than I had imagined. Like some of that thicker, uh, brushier country, which is what I'm accustomed to hunting, I, I always have pictured you guys hunting out in some, you know, real deserty looking stuff and it is absolutely gorgeous. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Like it, it's hard to, even with what you guys are doing over there, like it, it's really hard to sort of picture the, uh, the, the sort of countryside that you're in. And I guess all you have to do is, is you, you can only go off the videos you see, but in Australia, it's so, diverse the the hunting is like you just said it's outback it can be dry hot uh nothing but dirt under your feet and you wonder how animals are living out there you really do but you can also go to the southern parts of australia and you know it's just absolutely beautiful it's ferns and you know it's it's just like a rainforest in some sections and then we've got our high country as well which is it's nothing, I don't think it's, you know, in a true sense like what, how you guys hunt for, and I might have this wrong for your mule deer and so forth that are sort of in that real bare open country above, you know, sort of that timberline. We don't have that sort of thing, but we've still got high altitude hunting here. That's, you know, we've got, we've got it all really. We've got, we've got a good mixed bag of, of hunting and a lot of the hunters may be, uh, sort of in different zones in Australia. So you might have a lot of the bow hunters that are hunting big pigs and buffalo. They're in that hotter country, which is more north in Australia, that sort of way you described it, more outback style hunting. And then your southern hunters or your east coast hunters uh, really uh, focus more on similar to what you guys are doing, sort of getting into that sort of bush, you know, bushland, you know, sort of semi 
fringe country and and getting their teeth stuck into some deer. Yeah, we're we're pretty fortunate. Uh, we live in the state of Oregon, me and Bob, which uh, is on the west coast. And basically, from the ocean floor, you're moving through a uh, a rainforest jungle, and then it moves up into the mountains and into a big valley, and then you have a, a very vast area of the state that is like valley lands, uh, ag, and then it rolls into more big timbered mountains and into the desert. And so we have mule deer and we have whitetail and we have blacktail and Rocky Mountain elk and Roosevelt elk and, you know, sheeps and goats and bears. And so we have a pretty diverse ecosystem as well. And you can be hunting, like you said, in the desert. You know, Bob does a lot of mule deer hunting in the desert where I do a lot of uh, hunting right in the in the jungle. And you can you can do that all in the same day, You're, you know, three, four hour drive and you could be in a different uh, climate. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, you guys seem to have it pretty wide when it comes to, you know, your hunting. You know, I don't I don't know if it's all right, but I just wanted, thought I'd ask you guys a quick question, if I could, something that's really interested me about just the way hunting's viewed over there. Is it true that when you take an animal, let's say you take a, an elk or something like that, it's a law that you've got to take the meat. Now, do I have that right or not? Is that part of the tag system? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you got to take the meat or it's a wanton waste. It's against the law not to take it on take. all of our game animals. And that's, yeah. that's something that's policed? Like they're, they're right on top of that over there? Is that right? Absolutely. Um, this, the, the law can vary from state to state. Some laws require that you pull the whole entire animal out of the field, like bones and all, everything comes out. Um, some states allow you to just take the hind quarters, front quarters, back straps. Um, I even see where some, you know, you're required to take neck meat. Um, so it, it, it can vary from state to state, but absolutely the meat must must come out. Um, I think the only exception to that, Bob, right, is uh, grizzly bears. In yeah. Alaska, yep, yeah, that's unreal. Like, I, I just, <laughs> I think that's fantastic because you know over here in Australia we have nothing like that, and uh, I, for, you know, there's a lot of hunters over here that sort of hunt the what you call trophy hunters, I guess, in some way, even though that term can be used pretty loosely and maybe uh, in not the right way, but it's like they. Are not so much interested in what they can get from the animal in, from a meat perspective. They're more interested in, you know, sort of, I don't know, ticking a goal off in their mind and taking a, a mature animal and not so interested in what they can get out of it meat-wise. And for me, my whole motivation and the people I spend a lot of time with and hunt with, the motivation for them too is what we can get out of the animal um, from a meat perspective and, to me, that just makes sense. That's just good management in my mind, and it's good to hear you guys say that. I even heard something along the lines of as, as far as the the head of the animal is something you've got to take last. Is that right or not? Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And, and I think that uh, I, I can't speak for all hunters, but I, I think as a culture here, the meat is the most important thing. Um, I mean, sure, there's guys that like to have big, big uh, racks, um, you know, and that some guys, they say they mature into the, 
passing on younger animals to shoot mature animals and bigger racks. But I still think at the end of the day for everybody, the meat is very valuable. I mean, you can't just buy that kind of quality meat in the store. And um, uh, hunters here value that meat. They value sharing that meat with uh, friends and family. It's definitely a special part of the process. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to paint the wrong picture that we have. You know, there's, there's fellas over here who hunt have the same perspective, but there's also a large majority of younger hunters that probably have hardly ever cooked a piece of venison or a piece of wild game in their life, and they're right into their hunting. And I think just having a law like that one is just makes so much sense and puts hunting back into perspective you know really really quickly i think if without that uh i don't think you know i don't think hunting has much of a future without having that sort of mindset so here in australia i think something has to be done as far as that is concerned you know that's just something that really worries me i noticed in your youtube video where you refer you were hunting with a friend and you uh, said that you, you kind of had enough, almost enough meat, and that you were looking for one more animal and a smaller animal because you needed room to get that animal out. And that is often uh, the considerations we have to make. I mean, we want to go in deep, but you can only go as far as you can responsibly get the meat out. And if it's hot, warm, you have to take that into account. Like, I can't shoot an elk. 25 miles in the backcountry if i don't have horses and mules to get it out you can only hunt as far away from your your vehicle as you feel responsible to uh to get the meat out in a timely manner so that it's salvageable yeah and and look to be honest with you that just sounds perfect to me if that's not a bad problem to have you know that's part of the the process and i i yeah i do like i said i do wish that was something that was uh pushed here in, in Australia, uh, saying that we've got some great hunters out, out over here that really do focus on um, what they can get from the animal as far as the meat. But uh, if that was just something that was normal and people saw that as part of the hunting process here, I think hunting in Australia would be better off. Be You know, it's where we need to be. So Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one thing I noticed from your videos is it almost seems – like you have critters everywhere where, you know, here it seems like our animals are in pockets. You know, you got some critters living here or there. And I notice as you're wandering through the woods, it's like it almost seems like there's just animals all over the place. Is that a perception or am I getting that right? <laughs> oh, I wish it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that easy. Um, no, I that's... didn't mean easy, but it just seems like that high population um, and then I was yeah. wondering on top of that, like we have, uh, uh, we have wolves and mountain lions and black bears and grizzly bears, uh, you know, in some other states and our predators in a lot of our states are very out of check and are competing, uh, uh, aggressively for, uh, the ungulates, uh, with the hunters and, you know, we would love to have a, a better balance to that in a lot of states, especially the one we live in. Um, are you guys dealing with uh, that kind of predation? Well, as, as far as predators are concerned, we have foxes here, dingoes. Uh, so, yeah, as far like when it comes to 
animals like deer, they just have no natural predator really whatsoever in Australia. So, yeah, the in some places the animals can get pretty spread out and, like, there can be good numbers, you know, in, in different areas. But it's it's similar to what how you guys, you know, described it. There's pockets of animals where their numbers could be high, uh, but... You know, for the best part, you can't just wander through the the bush over here and and just expect to bump into animals, you know, or deer. They still take some finding to a degree. They still take a little bit of work. And just last just last night, uh, I was out just looking in a new area. And when when you go to a new area here in Australia, you you might you know, you might come across a small pocket of pigs or goats or you might find um, some better quality deer. You just don't know. It's a bit uh, bit difficult to, to pin an area down, you know, for, for a particular species. Although, you know, some areas get more well-known than others for, let's say, fallow deer or samba deer. Like the mountains are full of samba. Uh, they're an amazing animal, by the way. I don't know if you guys have ever come across samba deer before, but they're just they're just an extreme animal to hunt in every way. And you know, like they, but for the best part, you'd say they're spread right through the mountains. But you try find one, it's pretty hard animal to find. You got to work pretty hard uh, to to get up close to one of those. So yeah, look, there there are animals all over the place in some ways here and that might sort of represent itself that way when you start filming but like any hunting uh, it takes a bit of effort and a bit of forethought to be successful or continue to be successful what's the samba okay. deer so a samba are a really large animal they're uh, they're not as big as your elk but they're a heavy 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 animal that's uh you know a good I guess uh, you could say they're the size of a a cow, close to a size to a cow, um, or you know cattle. They're probably similar in size to that. Uh, they can be smaller, but like a mature animal's got a lot of weight to it. They're, uh, they're looks they're, like an elk, right? Yes, yeah, similar similar to an elk. Um, they have what makes them so difficult to hunt and so special is they have the ability to literally hide in plain sight. They're they're an amazing animal for blending into their environment and not just from a camouflage perspective, just their whole nature. They're very tenacious. They're very uh, cautious. You know, if you're hunting Samba and you're in the mountains and you're just walking along trying to cover some ground and you break a few sticks or you make a little bit of sound and they hear that in the distance, they're gone. You, you haven't got a hope. They're, they're very, very elusive. And for the best part of maybe, I don't know, uh, a couple of decades, people knew there was Sambo and they were seen a lot and there were hunters out there hunting them, but they were an animal that were difficult to find. Uh, they've got to the stage now where their numbers are so great that they're, you know, they're everywhere to a degree uh, in those areas. But even with the numbers uh, so strong, there's hunters, even rifle hunters that have been hunting Samba for three or four years that might have never shot one or maybe only shot one or two deer in their yeah, whole the, life. 
Yeah. We, we have the black-tailed deer here, the Colombian black-tail, that is a very elusive, nocturnal animal that is uh, to the point where a lot of locals would rather go hunt a mule deer um, because they are just so hard to hunt. And where they live, it makes it difficult. So that sounds similar to that. Yeah, they, I mean, if you take a samba with a traditional bow, you've you've done something pretty special here in Australia. Like it's that's how it's looked upon. There's very few traditional bow hunters that can say they've taken multiple samba deer. Uh, maybe they've been able to get one, but next. So one, where where do you fall into that category? Matt? I've been able to take quite a few Samba now. So uh, that's, yeah, I've had the opportunity to hunt them for, for a long time. I grew up in Samba country, in the high country. And yeah, I've got a good, uh, good number of Samba under my belt now with a traditional bow. Are you using, um, spot and stock, still hunting, ambushing? What is the uh, preferred hunting method for these elusive deer? Oh wow! Um, where do you start? I mean, the the <laughs> <laughs> samba are just like I said. Just when you think you've got them pegged down, they'll just make a fool of you really quickly. Uh, so spot and stalk. If you look, like I said, you got to be able to find them. Uh, you might be lucky enough to see some in some fringe country. Does that make sense? You what fringe yeah. country? Or, yeah, yeah. So Between might, the thick and the open. That's it. You might be lucky enough to catch some out in some fringe country and get a spot and stalk opportunity. But for the best part, it's, man, it's hand to hand combat style with these things. Um, you got to get in tight and thick and, and so spot and stalk is, um, I don't know if that's a good word. Well, I guess it's the only word you could use to term you could describe it. You basically need to get into their environment. And they're an animal that moves, even feeds extremely slowly. So, you know, you got to get in their environment. Um, we would call away. that still, still hunting, like just moving really slowly and, and being very aware of everything around you and just trying to creep through. Is that kind of? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, for sure. And it's even then for, for that reason, they're so hard to hunt in the sort of territory and country they live in that it, you know, like it's, it's one thing to get 70, 80 meters away from a Samba deer and see him across maybe a gully and see him on the other face. That's, that's not hard. You know, I can, I could get out there with the binoculars and rifle and put eyes on Samba pretty quickly, but you want to try and get 20 meters to a Samba. Well, you know, like, and, and a Samba stag for that matter, that's even, you know, that next level, even more elusive. That's, uh, that's really difficult. That takes some work, you know, and forethought. Now, do they, do they have a vocalization? Can you rattle for them or call for them? Um, when, when, how does that work? Do they rut once a year, twice a year? Well, they seem to, it's, it's the perception that they, that they do rut around October or September, uh, but the truth of it is they can rut all year round. They're not yeah. an animal that's that's pinned down to a, a specific time frame. Like a fallow deer, they'll rut hard and they'll do stupid things. You know, they'll they'll make mistakes left, right, and centre. Come March, April, and you know, as a bow hunter, you can call those animals in. They'll come charging in. 
you know, you can make it work from, you know, and make it work for you, you know, using, using the animal in that rut period, but not a Samba. There, you, you can call Samba. It's, uh, something which isn't, um, really talked about here, but you can do it if you know what you're doing. But even then, at the, for the best part, that's pretty finicky. It's not a guarantee. They're not an animal that play the game well. Uh, but mm. I, I tell you what, there's, there's no greater feeling than putting a Samba on the ground with a bow. I mean, if you, if you put a, any, whether it be a hind or a stag on the, on the ground with a traditional bow, you know, you're, you've got respect straight away from hunters because they're, they just are so, uh, hard to hunt. They really are. Yeah, I'm I'm a glutton for punishment. I think I would, I, I would probably have my eyes wrapped around those for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're the best. <laughs> I mean, it's the it's it's the top of the tree, you know. It's just yeah. great for for a traditional bow hunter. I often think, you know, you want to test yourself. You want to give your your hunting skills a go. Uh, come over and hunt some samba. You know, I often think about that with some of the guys that I like to watch hunt and they're good hunters. And I thought, I think to myself, you know, you guys would really, you'd, you'd throff over some of our Samba hunting. Cause Did you hear that, Bob? Like, he said, come over and hunt some Samba. Man, I'll yeah. tell you from watching those YouTube videos, it looks like paradise. It yeah, looks unbelievable. Well, there. Gosh. It's, just, it's just a plane ticket. That's all you got to do. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll over. So, <laughs> so when are, it's almost like, overwhelming to hear about so many deer species on the landscape when are the most of these deer rutting and or when is the desired time to go afield okay so it's getting pretty exciting over here now because in a month or so we step straight into our fellow deer rut and uh, our red red deer also rut at the exact same time pretty much as fallow so those two species are what is on a lot of hunters' minds right now. And, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen, but fallow deer in the rut, like hunting fallow deer bucks or fu- hunting fallow bucks is, is intense, really intense. And, you know, you're rattling, which I think you guys can do with your whitetail, can't you? you know, and the, bl- and the blacktail. It's really popular to do amongst the blacktail deer too. Yeah, and they come in like, do they come in really hard? Like they'll come charge no. that there? Yeah. No, they sneak in like, like, uh, like they're very shy and they're like oh, ghosts. Okay. At least the blacktails and sometimes, they just appear. Sometimes they come. Yeah. Through. It happens yeah. as well. Yeah. So they're sort of cautiously coming in. Um, yeah, I get you. Well, over here, when, when you, when you rattle in a fellow buck, he's coming in looking for a fight. And he's annoyed, you know, he's thinking, what's in my area? What's going on? So they'll come in, uh, they'll charge in to, to your, you know, your shooting lane. They'll come in at a, at, at a gallop. And sometimes they'll, uh, even act aggressively, you know, if they get close enough. It's a rare, it's a rare thing, but they can do that. I've had bucks do that, you know, getting close enough to me and their mind is so much you know, so driven towards a fight that even though you're, you're a human, they're just thinking, well, hang on a minute, what's going on? You know, they're looking for a piece of the action. So 
man, you can understand what I'm talking about. It's pretty, uh, pretty intense. I mean, yeah. it's not dangerous in any way. Yeah. If, if you can catch our, our elk towards the end of season, or if you can catch them in an area where there's not other hunters, you can get that kind of action where a bull will come in just angry, ripping everything up in sight, coming in, just, yeah. uh, throwing caution to the wind. And it is exciting when you are in that situation for sure. Yeah. So you like over, it, oh, it's unreal. And like over here, you can, you can use a bit of a spot and stalk tactic. And that's what I like to do with the fellow. I like to get in close before I start to rattle or call. I like to get into their zone where I know just any sound's going to antagonize them. And so th- you got to use your stalking skills there. But once you start rattling or once you start knocking those antlers together and if you're in their space and they think you're another you're another buck trying to come in on their girls uh they'll come at you they'll come running at you looking for for a piece of the action and so you know with the trad bow you got to be adaptable you got to be able to take a shot that um that you know take an honest shot sometimes under circumstances that you can't predict and for 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 a trad hunter man that is just that's awesome you know that's just the best the best style of hunting you could ever ask for you know having the animals come to you so hard and fast so i I really want to get to basically what you just said uh getting back into the traditional bow hunting but before we do that i just have a few more questions about these animals uh is the is the access deer what are you calling it uh chittle chittle yeah chittle deer is is that are they running the same time as the fallow and and do they is there inner how do, how is that happening is it are they living in the same uh, habitat and they can do they can live they can both inhabit the same areas we got little pockets of axis or chittle deer here but they're they're a funny animal when it comes to their rutting habits they they're not like a fallow deer or a red deer they they can rut throughout the year at different yeah, times that's Again, what I've heard. Yeah, again, like just with the, the guys that are right into deer, like those sort of deer species, like samba deer, chittle deer, they they have their own thoughts and feelings about, you know, when these animals are rutting. And, you know, you can be hunting a chittle or a samba and, and catch that animal in the rut, but it's not like you've planned to do it that way. You know, you can, you, you can see that the animal's behaving a little bit uh, differently, it's maybe not as cautious because it's out there looking for looking for the ladies, you know. And it's um it's obvious to you that the animals are rutting, but it's not a complete science to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, I've noticed that the small population we have here, uh, the the access or chittle deer, they they'll be some of the bucks will be in velvet. Some of them will be hard horned. Some of them will be shed. They seem to be all over the place. And I've heard from uh, some of the locals that the rut seems to be happening, uh, you know, periodically amongst the group. It's always different. And I know they have them in Hawaii, and I've heard kind of the same thing over in Hawaii. Is It's kind of all over the place. But when you see the fallow deer, they're uh, more pronounced, it seems. Oh, 100%. Yeah, like that's just the nature of the animal. You know, like when it comes to Samba and Chittle, they have a tendency to maybe an area. You might find a, a lot of velvet stags, and so they're dropping similar times. You know, it seems to be uh really 
it's really localised, I think, a lot of the rutting times, and they can be throughout different times of the year. So uh, it's not, not something that you focus so much on as a Samba or, or an Axis deer hunter. It's, um, it's not something you try and work, you know, work with really. You, they're just a different animal altogether to the fallow or the red deer. So when you go afield, besides when you know some of those pronounced ruts are happening, how do you decide if you're going to go after small game or you're going to target this deer? Is it just whatever you come across, or are you actually going to certain habitats uh, seeking a certain animal at a certain time of year? Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, like it's it's about, you know, you've got to measure your blows, so to speak, uh, and, you know, you've got to – any successful – hunter of any species you know has to you have to have your mind on on that animal and even though there are animals spread through australia i don't want to give the misconception as to you know just that there's all these species everywhere all through australia it's not like that you know like you still got to go to your your designated areas so to speak similar to the way you're describing the species around you and and hunt them so for the next few months, like I said, fallow deer, red deer are on my mind in a big way. Uh, I won't even be thinking about Samba really or any other deer species. I'll be chasing that fallow buck over the rut and trying to get it done. Okay, so transitioning from that, how here in the States, in the U.S., um, you know, all of us, you know, all the hunters, they're all our brothers and sisters, but we have different categories, just like you guys, rifle hunters, muzzleloader hunters, uh, you know, compounds and traditional bow hunting. And we've even got uh, separate seasons for at least the rifle seasons are really short lived and uh, they're more controlled, harder to get the tags, at least in the state we live in. And more people take a field and it's almost like you're trying to out with the rifle, the other hunter than you are the animal because of the amount of pressure. And then guys get tired of that pressure. At least this is my perception. And some guys mature into or transition into wanting to hunt with a muzzleloader or with a bow, um, just to have a better, longer, more liberal season. And guys that uh, have, you know, maybe mastered the compound or become bored with it or in love with the romance of a traditional bow, uh, you know, head in that direction. And here, uh, me and Bob are actively trying to uh, work with our state and uh, organizations to form traditional-only bow hunting opportunity because the pressure is, is so severe during bow seasons where you guys have just kind of a wide-open thing how does a guy, you know, not just go, I'm just going to hunt with a gun and hunt whenever I want to, uh, versus going all the way to a longbow? I mean, how does that, uh, how does that take place there? Well, I guess that's the, that's a difficulty really, isn't it? With traditional gear, uh, who, who wants to pick a traditional bow up and try and shoot a deer when they can pick a rifle up? and knock a deer over relatively easily i mean what sort of person's going to do that it takes a certain type um we're a bit weird i think the tradi- <laughs> us traditional bow hunters we're we're a bit different 
but you know it is it is challenging when you're competing with rifle even compound hunters as a, as a traditional bow hunter here in Australia it is difficult and success doesn't come as easy uh, however you describe success whether it be you know taking that mature animal or just feeding your family through your through the your tool your chosen tool you know it's um I'd like to see in Australia we have uh, just when you describe the way you describe your seasons there and you know you have I think you said you have like an archery season and then um, you know a muzzleloader and and so forth what would be good here in Australia I think is opening some of our national parks we do have areas over here that are classed as national parks or wilderness areas and they're riddled. There's just animals all over them. They're getting out of control to the point where they're trying to shoot them out of helicopters and things like that. I'd like to see in Australia a, a archery season or at least access to these areas maybe, you know, given to bow hunters. Uh, that would be a positive, but it's really. Are those, are those areas off limits to hunting? Those those areas, uh, there are areas that are off limits to hunting. Yes, here in Australia, that um, are classed as sort of sanctuaries. If that's uh, wilderness sanctuaries, I guess they like to call them. And and a lot of the national park areas or alpine areas are closed at different times for various reasons. And it's always the case that you know these are the areas where the animals like deer species just tend to thrive and get out of control. And the, the last thing we want here in Australia is, is you know, deer being managed through um, baiting or poisoning programs or culling programs. That's the last thing we want when there's so many hunters out there that can utilise the meat and enjoy the outdoors, you know, through, Absolutely. through taking those animals in the, the way that we're meant to, you know, or traditionally. It, it's just really interesting to me. I mean, I mean, Bob, would you agree that half of our bow hunters are bow hunters because of the liberal season, not necessarily their passion for archery? Yeah, you know, I think it's just. It's. I would imagine it's probably over half now. Yeah. And a lot of it is just being able to hunt on a general tag. I think is is the big reason. You know, the opportunity. They yeah. Hunt once every few years with their rifle so everybody wants to hunt every year so yeah so like a a a rifle elk hunter here gets five days where a bow hunter gets 30 days and usually an additional uh 15 days later in the later in the year so it's you know 30 to 45 days versus five to nine days for a rifle it's a lot of guys i think go over to it just because they want the liberal season not because they love the bow and arrow and then to take it a step further uh guys like us you know we always say we're in the two percent you know we're two percenters to uh limit ourselves to to this type of uh um hunting yeah but it's the uh it's the pinnacle of bow hunting isn't it it is man oh man it's just the best and yeah you know it's it's uh, i was listening to snyder sort of talk about it it is a hard sell you try and describe to even compound hunters why they need to pick up a a trad bow 
Uh, it's hard to hard to get that that passion across, but man, once it's got you, it's got I you. I think a lot of times all it takes is getting a a bow and arrow that uh, is uh, tuned, and you spend a little time with it, and soon as you can start putting that arrow uh, where you're looking, there's a feeling, you know, that that the flight of the arrow, the the feeling you get by doing so. Uh, it, I think it does grip people soon if they if they take a chance and, and give it a try for sure. Yeah, and I think that's what you just said is is definitely um, is definitely it. You know, it's just making all the whole thing work for you and getting your head around the fact that it's not the hardest uh, hardest instrument to use from a hunting perspective is what we how we need to be painting the picture because uh, you know you just need to pick a bow up you need to start shooting some arrows you need to get a feel for it that's what it's 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 been said it can be the you know the easiest thing in the world or the most complicated and and i think uh i think a bit more of that the push towards just getting out there and and letting a few arrows go wouldn't hurt you know wouldn't hurt well, that's a great segue right there. So, as you said, it could be the most difficult thing or the or the most simplest thing, just depending on how you approach it. And uh, following you on Instagram, and you've you've put up uh, quite a few videos of you shooting your bow uh, via practice, or you had one the other day where you shot this fox, and this fox just kind of came into your window, and you just put the hammer on him. Uh, man, that video got me excited. That was awesome. Um, and seeing, uh, you kind of come, I relate to you a bunch. It seems how you've kind of come full circle in your archery as far as, um, having a, as they, you know, as Joel Turner calls it, a controlled closed loop system to, uh, making your archery more versatile and willing to, uh, snap shoot to uh, take your time at the shot, uh, to cant your bow, to, to shoot off your butt, off your back. To, it's a very versatile weapon if you allow it to be. And for me, in my own personal archery and bow hunting, I've kind of come full circle as of recently to really wanting to make my bow very versatile and, and having all these different skill sets. So if you could speak to some of that, I'd love to hear it from you. Yeah, I, I mean – Things, you know, terms like open loop, closed loop, controlled, let's face it, they're, I mean, the, 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 the idea of, of, of shooting a bow and, and using a bow hasn't been so complicated in the past. I mean, it seems that, you know, for the best part, uh, social media is flooded with, you know, images and videos of people shooting their bows and showing how good their form is, not so much where their arrows are going. And I think, you know, you can overcomplicate the, the well, I think the trad bow has been overcomplicated and, and maybe uh, the, the, the direction it's heading as far as, you know, instruction, even though I really value um, you know, the instruction that's out there. I think we just need to be careful about how we paint the picture uh, of traditional bow hunting because I think, you know, for me, I know myself, I, I can't even remember how I shot a bow when I was younger. It wasn't important. 
I'm sure I didn't do it right, but you know, I was able to take a couple of animals that were pretty sought after here in Australia. Even for a rifle hunter, I was able to take a couple of hog deer in my younger years and many, um, you know, different animals. And I still, to this day, can't recall how I shot the bow. I don't know what my form was like. I had no one to show me. But the arrows were finding their mark, you know. And it's only recently, as you said, doing that full circle of, you know, how and why and what we should do uh, with a bow that um, I'm starting to maybe consider in my hunting and bow hunting just how important is a shot process is it that important that um i need to be devoting all this time to it or can i just focus on on the art of bow hunting and let be what what is what is you know let the let the shot take care of itself i mean if you've got got real problems in your shooting uh you need to you need to work on that and we're all working on our shooting to some degree we're all trying to be better but you know the the variety in traditional bow hunting is what makes it great you know the 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 ability to be adaptable in different circumstances and to use the bow as an extension of your arm is what makes traditional bow hunting great so if we're you know always looking to to maybe you know fall into some shot cycle or process every time we want to drop the hammer on an animal i don't think um i don't think that's going to be you know a good a good mindset to to you know to maybe pass on to to new bow hunters i don't think they need to think of it that way although you know like i said instruction will always help improve but it's not the be end all in fact you know i don't want to go on a bit too much about it but I, I was listening to uh aaron snyder talk with donnie vincent now both those blokes are, i just love listening to aaron talks really well he's got an honest way about him and and man donnie vincent is just he's cool he's got some good ideas you know when it comes to hunting and and snyder was going you know talking to to donnie and saying so you're going to pick up a trad bow and and donnie's like well yeah i will but first i've got to make sure i do it right i'm going to catch up with with tom Clum. i'm going to get some instruction i'm going to sink my teeth into it and i was just you know he, he, he that, said he said he was going to do a three-year internship yeah it was something like that i mean i'm yeah it, it was it was along the lines of this is what I need to do to get going, you know, and whereas yeah. my attitude is, well, hey, man, just pick the bow up and you got a hay bale somewhere, start, you know, start poking some arrows into it. That's what you got to do. And then we'll, we'll iron out the kinks as we go. So, I mean, if you're on the outside, we're on the inside, but if you're on the outside and you're looking in and you're thinking, you know what, I might give that recurve a go, um, are you looking at a mountain or you're looking at something that's that's quick and easy and and fun what what are you looking at i i think you know for the best part our our instructors that are out there that are doing awesome things and helping push traditional bow hunting along maybe just need to think about the picture they're painting because um with all that good that they're doing and it's awesome it's amazing 
they might just want to remember that uh, the the trad bow is uh, there for everyone, and we can all do it in different ways. I I really I really like your thought on it. Um, I'd like to elaborate it on myself. I I agree with you a hundred percent. Tom Clum, Rod Jenkins, Joel Turner, uh, these uh, the push guys. They're doing great things, bringing guys into the sport, uh, giving guys uh, finding. Everyone has a different way of going about it. Bob, um, you know, he seems to have always kept it super simple and doesn't overthink it. Uh, he he uh, has learned to use his hunting instinct and how to shoot his bow when he just goes out in the field and 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 does it. Um, me, on the other hand, I'm a, a guy that is guilty of overthinking it and uh, letting social media uh, make myself really overthink it and have had bouts with uh, target panic. And so some of that instruction was very helpful. Uh, but as I said, coming full circle and being on social media and having newcomers asking us for advice, uh, exactly what you said, these guys feel like, um, and you know, Aaron Snyder, another great guy for traditional archery, uh, Donnie Vincent thinking about coming into the fold. Um, I can relate to, to him also as well, but it seems like guys think that they need all of this instruction. They want to get a clicker mounted, which I, I had a clicker on my bow for a year and a half and I've had it off my bow for a year. It's something I had to work towards. And yeah, I think that a lot of guys are overthinking it and, that you just need to get out there and watch that arrow fly and find your way. That that one guy's way isn't going to be your way, and that's the beauty of traditional archery. Once again, is you can make it as difficult or as simple as you choose to. And I really recommend trying to make it simple because that is the simplicity of it is what makes it so beautiful. Not having to uh, rely on a rangefinder um, and to be able to not rely on technologies and to just go out there and shoot the bow. Yeah. And for sure it's, it's uh, for me, it's what makes the, the traditional bow awesome. And, and, and so there's the, these guys that you're talking about, I, you know, I've got to say too, like, I don't want to sound like I'm against what they're doing because I'm not, I, I find me either. Any of that instruction is just, so good and you know there'll be little be little things that i'm always working on in my bow hunting in my shot like i want to know i want to know the i want to know what is looked upon as the the best way if there's good better best if you want to follow that avenue i want to know what what's going to you know help me move move ahead or you know or become a more comfortable bow hunter there's no doubt about that but just if it's painted as the only way, if it's talked about as this is the way you have to do it and this is the right way, then that becomes a uh, a different thing altogether. And I just think, you know, like, keep, you know, these guys need to be maybe just careful about how they go about their instruction from that perspective because you want to give everyone the opportunity to... to get into traditional bow hunting there's there's fellas out there who love the simplicity of a rifle you, you know you you put the crosshairs on the animal you pull the trigger the, the 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 whole game is hard enough as it is for them in their mind they don't want to have to be 
you know, drawing back on the bow, clenching the left butt cheek and winking three times before they let an arrow go. You know, like they want to, they want to be able to just get it done and, and, you know, focus on what makes bow hunting cool. And that's that arrow finding its way through the, the air into that zone that you, you, that you're looking at. And we can do, we can do a better job of, of maybe remembering that, um, us fellas who are maybe influencing others to take up arms, you know, we can we can continue to push that forward if we have the right perspective on on the art of bow hunting, you know, because the shot is not everything, you know, it's it's a it's a big part of the game, but it's not everything, you know. You can if you're a new traditional bow hunter and you want to get out there and get it done and all you can do is hit a pie plate at 10 meters well go hunt you know go hunt and take an animal at 10 meters you know yeah. simple as that you don't have to be shooting you know softball size groups at 40 or 50 meters that's just something that um a lot of people will never be able to do and uh we don't want to paint that picture that that's what's needed to be successful yeah i, I agree 100 percent. and out here out west you hunt, we hunt our tails off, uh, to get an opportunity, you know, one opportunity, maybe, maybe two, one opportunity. And I found in my own personal trad quest that if I only had one way of going about it, it has cost me those opportunities because, um, I felt that I needed to get into perfect form and pull through the shot and be in total control and the opportunity slides out where if I can in my practice be very versatile and have the uh, ability to hold for two or three seconds or to let a snapshot off really quick or to shoot off my back or, or uh, off my belly or my knees or do whatever it takes to, uh, to take advantage of that opportunity when that opportunity presents itself. It can make me a more versatile bow hunter. And, uh, I, I'm envious of guys like Bob who it's not even really, uh, talking to Bob. I'll let him talk on it, but it's, it's just like he puts all his effort into hunting. And then when it comes time for killing, it's just automatic. He knows what he needs to do. Not that Bob doesn't miss shots or, or whatever, but, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't complicate it the way that I, uh, once really did and i'm really uh maturing into uh my practicing and my thought process on traditional bow hunting and on shooting a bow as that it is versatile and that you don't have to just do it one certain way that 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 you can you can be really versatile and uh find your mark yeah and i mean let's let's go back to the old analogy of throwing a, a ball or baseball, I guess that seems to be used an awful lot. So all of us have had the feeling of throwing a ball without thinking, absolutely not even thinking about it, not even aiming, just throwing and it hitting the mark. Or someone says, see if you can hit that, and without thinking about it, you throw that ball and bang, there it is, right? It's, it's, it's hit its spot. When it comes to bow hunting, you, you got to choose what you want to fight. If you want to fight target panic, you want to fight 
adrenaline, if you want to push against those things, you can choose to do that. And a good shot process will help you overcome those things. Or you can, you know, you can make a decision that you're going to work with, try and tap into every instinct you've got, and you're going to, you know, approach the bow from that perspective. And that's where, you know, like snap shooting gets a bad name. And it, and the reason it gets a bad name is because people often snap shoot because they have issues with their shot. They have either issues with panic of some kind or uh, they're just, uh, they're not finding, they're not finding their, their form, whatever, whatever reason it is that it looks, it can be looked upon badly, but a snapshot or a quick shot is often going to give you a inroad, so to speak, into that uncanny, you know, instinct, subconscious style um, approach to your hunting. It's going to give you an opportunity to use the mechanics of your body and your mind to its best ability. And let's face it, how many of us have been in a situation where we've had an animal in front of us and that whole shot process that we've locked onto for months and months and months has just gone right out the window and we're left hanging on to that, you know, that instinct and that subconscious. So do you want to fight that? Is that what you want to do? Well, you can. You can maybe even overpower that and be successful or you can give into it to a degree and let it work for you. And I've found over the years shooting, you know, hundreds of animals that uh, being, you know, adaptable and saying, you know what, I'm just going to go with this and just let it happen. I've put the practice in. I've thrown some shots down the range, you know, without even thinking um, I can get this done. I've loved where that's put me as a bow hunter. And that, then yeah. it's, you know, it's just, it's the that, nature of what we do. That's exactly what I guess I'm trying to allude to through this conversation is that in my practice for so many years, I only shot what was seen as this controlled for perfect form arrow, which takes me two, three, four, five seconds. And I didn't practice this just automatic snap quick shot. And now I'm, I'm, that's not just how I shoot, but I, I've thrown that into my, uh, my repertoire of shooting and I'm amazed. I'm perhaps like, I'm shocked that out to 12 yards, I can shoot an arrow very fast and put it right where I needed to go. And what's happened to me in the past is I've rattled in a blacktail or I've bugled in a bull and there he is at that 10 yard mark. And I don't even attempt to make the shot because I feel like I don't have the four seconds to make the shot or I, go ahead and try to make the shot and the shot goes away because I didn't practice or have confidence in the ability to just shoot the arrow real quick. And I feel that it's going to be a game changer in my bow hunting in 2019 to be able to go, okay, there he is at six yards. Uh, trust myself that uh, I can just put it together real quick. Yeah. Or even, you know, if we, if we drop the word quick, just shoot the bow. Right. Without, um, without having all these do's and don'ts in front right. of you, you know, can we do that? Well, what does that mean? Well, that means 
that's that's freedom right there. That's what it is. Freedom. It's, freedom. it's a li- yeah. It's li- it's liberating. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. But then also, you you also want to have in your bag of tricks. You have a bull out there at uh, twenty yards, and you have a small window to get through, and he doesn't know you're there, and you want to be able to uh, go execute that shot as well, and you ha- know you have the time to to look at that shot and hold for a, a second or two and, and pinpoint it and make a and slide it in there. And I think being versatile is really what uh what what I'm trying to uh, avail here. Yeah, and I think what you just said is really important, and that's the balance. You know, like I, mean, I, I could be guilty, or we could be guilty of 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 you know banging banging the drum on you know for for just for snap shooting and don't worry about anything. You know, we can be guilty of pushing that too hard too. But the 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 balance is exactly the way you described. Can you hold? And can you anchor? Can you aim if you want to? If you can do these things, then you have freedom to do a half door shot if you want to. You you have that freedom because you're not hamstrung, so to speak. You're not held back by um by you know by target panic or by you know by letting the bow overpower you. You're not, you're not. You're not in a position where you're out of control, so to speak, in your shot process, and and so that's really what um, I think I'm trying to push for traditional boning, if I can be so bold, is just you've got to be, you've got to have, if you've got target panic, you've got to have it under control. You have to have it under control. And blokes like you know Joel Turner and the guys in the push and Tom Clum, they'll help you get that under control. But once you do. Um, don't feel like you 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 have to just shoot the bow one particular way. You know, spread out and um and overpower it through determination and good form and good work and and enjoy what you've got in your hand. And those are those are the advantages over a compound bow. Like a lot of guys think that we're limiting ourselves. Um, sure, at at, at long distances, but a compound bow isn't a versatile weapon. It is set up to to hit the back wall and to look through the peep and to line up the site and you, you, uh, it's set up to, it's a mechanical device that's set up to run that way. And if you, uh, practice with a longbow or recurve in a, in a manner where you're versatile, it becomes, it has its advantages, a, a lot, quite a few advantages. Oh, it has a, there's a lot of advantage to it. And, 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 you know, you, like I said, you're tapping into that natural instinct that we have we all got it there we've all got the ability to you know to look at something and work towards it with our hands that's what hand-eye coordination is if you want to you want to feel what's that what that's really like uh pick up a bow fire an arrow you know get the job done and the best way you're going to be able to do that is with a traditional bow that hasn't got sights hasn't got a mechanical system in place to help you you know get it done it's all you and that's what trad bow hunting is hey bob speak to that a little bit because bob has been bow hunting since he's 12 years old and he has gone back and forth to the compound and i'd love to hear bob's uh take on on this conversation so i i guess for me did you listen to our last one we did with fred asbell we just did a podcast with him and he wrote the books on instinctive shooting you know 
Yeah, so I had that's, to listen, I had that's to listen all, to that. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I had around when I was when I was a kid and and um yeah, I mean I th- I think there's so much talked about the other way and so little talked about what we're talking about, which is good. You know, like I said, all all everybody has their own way, but I think it should be of equal importance what we're talking about. You know, there's there's a underrepresentation of of the mental side, I believe, which is you know, the the confidence and the concentration, you know, like for me, when, when an animal's coming in, I ha- I have to, I have like a f- tunnel vision focus when it's about to happen on that spot, you know, on exactly what I want to hit. I don't, I'm not thinking about anything else out there. You know, I'm not looking at the horn, you know, like just nothing. It's just like, I, I have this little vision. I don't remember pulling back and coming to anchor. All I remember is that spot. And then I remember like the flight of the arrow going there and, um, and I think, like I said, the confidence is also a thing that's kind of underrated. And and those are those are hard things for us, like where James and I live, because like he said, you'll hunt, you know, a whole season and get you know maybe one or two opportunities, you know, for an elk. And and to gain the confidence of, you know, being able to make the shot is hard when we don't get to shoot hundreds of animals like you do. So I think stump shooting and 3D shoots and, and all those things are, are ways to help. But I think confidence is huge because, uh, you know, when you take the, the mental aspect out of it, you know, I think it's like, like anything. Like I said, if, if you, if your mind's clear enough that you're not thinking about those other things, it just happens. You know, like I said, throwing a baseball, I play baseball out as a pitcher. Like if, if you, if you were thinking about like, oh man, I don't want to throw low or I don't, you know, like, you'll mess up your your pitch. But if you're not thinking that and you're just thinking about that catcher's mitt and right where you're gonna throw it, that's that's how it works. It's the same principle with a bow, right? If you if a bull comes in and you're thinking, Oh man, I, I don't want to miss this thing. I don't want to miss, you're probably gonna miss, you know? Um and so like ways to train our mind in those areas I think are are equally as important as if you have target panic, you know, all those other steps that that Joel and those guys are talking about. I once read a, it was like a, it was a little poster I found somewhere online and it was, and it was Paul Schaefer and like his 10, 10, there was like 10 shooting tips or something like that on there. And I just remember that confidence, the concentration, all those things. And, and the more you do it, I think, I think the instinctive shooting stuff takes just a lot of time and a lot of practice and the more you do it, the better you'll get at it. It's like like anything that you do over and over and over. You know, when I was going through our fire department training, it was like a year long. And we we would take hydrants, you know, just nonstop, nonstop, like hundreds of times a day. And they would tell us, like, well, if three years from now it's the middle of the night and you, you know, you haven't slept in two days and, you know, you roll up to this fire, you won't forget how to do it. And you don't forget how to do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, just hearing you speak about it and just sort of thinking about the way I approach it, it's probably similar to the to, to way you shoot. Uh, you know, I, I get in that zone. I see see the animal and it's it's just going to happen. And sometimes I don't remember pulling back at the on the bow and I don't remember, you know, any of that process. I just remember... The, the the moment you know getting it done and and what came from that but to get to that point 
that practice you're talking about, even as an in, you know shooting instinct, it takes work, and that's where some of this instruction that we're seeing is really good because if you practice and still go through um, go through your your shot process or whatever process is being shown to you, or you keep working on improvements um, when you're not out hunting, just when you're firing arrows down the range. It, it, it'll help you. There's no doubt about it. But you've got to be willing at some point to let all that go. Let all that practice um, do its work. You know, like yep. sure enough, if you're going to stand in front of the target, get it right. You know, practice in a good way. Do do things that are going to help with your uh, you know your mechanics in your shot. Do do all that. But when it comes to hunting, allow it to do its work and. That's really, I guess, what I think we're saying is, you know, we, we it'd be it'd be ridiculous to to dismiss the 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 quality attached to the training and the instruction that's out there in shooting a trad bow because it's mm. great, it does its work. But hey, you don't need to rip it like it's a security blanket. That's not what's needed for a bow hunter. Yeah, and I think that guys in today's age. They want to invest into their shooting. They want to invest into their time outdoors, meaning they want to spend money and hope that that investment will make them better. But I think it's time spent. And I, I, we've, we're getting a lot of replies to the Fred Asbell interview where guys were like, hey, I never thought of that I live in a city or in town that I could just shoot from 10 feet away and, and put that practice in. Um, it, it's time spent with a traditional bow. Um it's time spent. I mean, that is, that is huge. And then also touching on like where Bob had uh, said, where you have the opportunity to shoot at a lot of animals. Um, we're here in Oregon, you know, we might in the West, we might get one opportunity to shoot at an animal. Well, that, that also the guys in Mississippi and Georgia and, you know, some of these other States where they're hunting pigs year round and they get, we get one deer tag and one elk tag we get to shoot we get to hunt for one elk and one deer and that that's it unless you're going to pay big money and go out of state where some of these guys out east they they think oh you guys got elk and bear and all this it's great but they they get to shoot you know 10 deer 20 deer unlimited amounts of deer some of these states unlimited amounts of pigs and some of these guys from alabama and stuff they they have they have practice that I just don't uh, have because I'm shooting at stumps and targets and shooting at fur is totally different. So for the guys in our situation, uh, my suggestion is to practice every which way that you can and be versatile for when that shot presents itself, you, you can make, uh, make something happen with what's presented. Yeah, it's um, good, good advice. That's good advice. Well, uh, let's get, uh, let's get uh, away from the shooting and, and into a little bow hunting before we wrap this up. Uh, we love a good bow hunting story. Um, you know, maybe, uh, get into, you know, some of your, give us one of your better hunting stories. Let's hear, let's hear about these Samber deer. We talked yeah. about those a lot and I think I got a picture of how you're doing it, but there's really no way to know for sure until you tell us a good story. So. Okay. Um, boy, you put me on the spot. Let me think. Um, so <laughs> I'd, I'd have to say, like, when you think about a good story, just something that's 
memorable that meant a lot to you. Um, it was some deep, with some details on kind of, you know, so that our listeners can learn from it, like, you know, how that, that, uh, hunt started and how it progressed and, and, sure. and how you got there. Okay. Well, I, I reckon probably something that stands out in my mind is I, I got pretty determined at one stage to self film, uh, a samba being taken with a traditional bow and, I wanted to sort of take people on that journey and try and, you know, see if I could document it in some way. And that whole process um, took me to a pretty awesome place and a, you know, an awesome hunt in general. I went up into the uh, Victorian high country and I just had my my mind set on, um, on getting this job done. So I was running a 50-pound bow at that stage, which is thought upon as being pretty light for samba deer. In fact, it's right on the threshold of what's legal. So we do have some legalities with poundage and so forth, and that's right on the the bottom end of things, 50-pound. And I was running uh, an arrow just a little heavier than 500 grain. I think it was about 520 or something like that, and practicing really hard and and. I went up into the into the mountains and I had three or four really good opportunities at Samba Deer. Uh, they'd come in reasonably close to me and every time they'd, they'd come in from the wrong angle and I just couldn't get it done and it was um, really frustrating. This went on for a couple of weeks and uh, my son, who is a hunter himself, uh, was out there with me and we decided to split up and head into this uh, deep, deep uh, gully system that, you know, sort of had a pretty high elevation. And we worked our way through there, and and he was hunting up ahead of me in the gully heads. And it sort of got to the stage in the day where it was pretty hot and things were pretty, um, you know, looking pretty dismal as far as getting the job done. And I just decided to sit on a on a ridge and and just watch him come down this system and I thought well if I can get a good photo of him coming down and just um hopefully he'll get a shot off it'll be good and as he's walking down this this system I could hear all this noise uh coming from the bottom of the valley floor and what was happening he was pushing these samba deer ahead of him they were they were busting out of the system and and I just jumped on that opportunity. I just I tried to read the play a little bit and worked out where these animals were heading out, and I was able to basically cut cut the story short. Was able to get an arrow away on a deer, and it happened exactly how you described it. I can't remember drawing back. The animal came tearing out of the gully and stopped and looked at me for a moment. Um, and that was my opportunity, and I was able to capture capture that on film uh, with the arrow um, finding its mark. But what made it really special was we were probably four or five kilometres from where we were camped, and as soon as I shot that deer, I knew it wasn't um, completely perfect. The, the shot was in the boiler room, but the animal ran off with a fair bit of steam, and... and as soon as I lost sight of it, um, I, I knew it was going to be a difficult tracking job. Well, as I started to track the animal, uh, blood became scarce and I was only getting a drop here and there. 
I radioed back to the camp where I had one of my dogs, one of my Labradors, um, back at camp with, with my wife and just asked her to let her go or send her off towards me. And in the middle of the bush, in the middle of the high country, she let my dog Kimber go and Kimber took about half an hour. She, um, she headed out and eventually found me and it was a big thing. And, uh, this, just to see her coming up, I'll never forget it to see her coming up that mountain looking for me, uh, and then coming to my feet. Uh, we had a moment there where I was just, you know, I'd already been, I was emotional from what had just happened. And then here's my dog that's come out into the middle of nowhere, found me. And then immediately she's got onto the trail and we tracked that deer three, about 300 meters, which is not, nice to talk about seeing any animal move off that far after a shot but it was just it is what it is hunting is what it is sometimes and she was able to find that deer and we found it together and my boy was there my dog was there I had a camera there and it was a moment that I'll never forget and you know what it was just an old find we took all the meat it was an old girl um nothing great no you know I'm not going to get any uh Pats on the back with my Instagram pictures of that old thing. But it's a a hunt that I'll never, ever forget for those reasons. And, you know, I'd put a lot of work into that dog. I'd put a lot of work into my bow hunting. I just I was using every bit of knowledge I had of the area and the animal and for it all to come together and mesh in like it did. um, You know, if I could replicate that again, well, um, you know, that's yeah, that would be amazing. So that was it's it's not the most exciting story, but you want to talk about Samba and and the highs and lows. There's plenty of lows, and <laughs> when you get a high like that, um, and you get it done, and you're able to carry meat out with your boy next to you, and you know your dog at foot, everyone's smiling on the way back. That's hunting. That's Heck a beautiful yeah, story. That's a great yeah. story. Greater uh, challenge, the greater the reward. That's for sure. Man, we don't, I don't want to keep you on here forever, but maybe touch a little bit about, about, uh, I know you're hunting with your dogs. Uh, you have a background in dog training, um, which is really interesting to me. I, I grew up training dogs, not for hunting, um, but for obedience and personal protection. Um, I would love to, you to touch a little bit about, uh, you know, it's a very unique situation of a guy that hunts, uh, bow hunts and, uh, incorporates his Labradors here and there. Yeah, well, that to me, it's just an added joy. It's um, an added tool. So the, the best way to describe it without focusing on the training or or anything like that, if you could have a dog next to you that's telling you what's ahead of you all the time, um, would you take it? Well, everyone, I don't think there's be anyone that wouldn't, you know, it's... um. That what holds people back is getting to that position, I suppose, with a dog in, in, in training. But like, I, I find it very difficult to head out into the bush without, um, one of my dogs because of that, just the joy that comes from watching them work. You know, it's like, it's like you, some of us like to hunt on our own and that's great, you know, but if you've got a good mate that knows how you work and you both think the same way and you you get the job done how good do you feel you know it's a great feeling that's what it's a connection it's 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 something that's 
special and you can get that from hunting with a dog and people think you can't hunt um, animals with a you know with a dog and a traditional bow but really the two go together um, just so well they go together awesomely and you just got to do it the right way so I, I use my dogs as indicators that's how they work they have no malice in them they don't want to chase the deer they don't want to bite the deer or uh, cause any harm but they want to find and and there's a set of rules in place that we've established that's the training program and once you know once they know that uh you've got you've got the world at your fingertips you know i can walk into a patch of bush that has no line of sight and when i say no line of sight you know just thick thick stuff and let's face it all the good animals tend to find themselves there that's where they want to be. They they use that cover. Well, you can get in there and walk walk into the wind and have your dog next to you, and that dog saying to you, you know what, there's something, you know, ahead 50 meters. Put your game face on. Let's get this done. And man, that's unreal, you know. So that's at that bad. point, are you putting the dog in a downstay, or is the dog stalking with you? A good trainer says is less. Like says as little as possible to 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 the dog. That's what a good trainer should do. So no, I don't. The dog knows what to do. The dog um, the dog will start to prop itself, start to slow up because that's the nature of the game. You know, initially the young dog will want to maybe tear into there or it's a bit um, bit excited, but you know, as they get used to the process, they'll just stop and wait. I mean, if um, if you have to, you you know you you can get the dog to sit behind and you can stalk in that last twenty meters. But there is a lot of advantage of having a dog next to you or in the area when you're stalking deer because if that deer grabs a uh, you know sight or can can grab a hold, so to speak, of the scent of the dog, they won't always run. They'll they'll stand their ground. They're used to seeing predators in their zone and so often i've been in situations where the dog has been seen by the deer smelt by the deer and so the deer becomes alert but not alert to you alert to that animal and if your dog's clever enough and used to indicating deer if they come into contact with deer and the deer and the dog are in um a a staring contest or in standoff, so to speak, you have a lot of opportunity in front of you to get the job done. Uh, you can come around the side, you can break away from the dog, and you know it's like the old raptor technique where you, you know, you you get the <laughs> attention. One gets the attention of the animal, and the other comes in from the side. And you can do that with a dog, and it's uh, just an awesome mechanism for uh, success. That sounds so awesome. It's not even legal in Oregon to hunt with a dog in any shape or form, um, but for big game. But, man, I'm jealous. I would love to have a dog with me. Um, you, it would seem like it's so foreign that it would seem like it could be a disadvantage, but the way you describe it, it seems like such a huge advantage uh, in camaraderie to, and in the, in the hunt itself. Um, is it common for bow hunters to, to have a Labrador or a dog with them while hunting? No, it's pretty much unheard of, to be honest. But there are rifle hunters who try and use the same techniques, and some do it really well. 
uh, indicating dogs are basically described as. Um, yeah. They have have no malice, but you know, like people always overcomplicate things when it comes to to training dogs. You know, especially for that purpose. But if you've got a young pup and you teach teach that pup what yes means or what good is, and you also teach them what no is and what bad is. You've just opened up the door to teach them anything, and and dog training is is simple. You know, it can be simple, and when it comes to bow hunting, if that dog's used to you know following the path of less resistance, it works within its pack. It's got a good pack mentality. You can teach that dog to hunt any way that you like, and if you've got the skills with the bow and the skills with the um you know in connecting with a dog, well. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Man, you're you're my kind of you're my kind of people, man. Just what you said right there. Um, like I told you, I have a, a background in training dogs, and the first thing that I teach uh, a person, a client uh, who's working with their dog, or first thing I teach my puppy is what yes and what no means. You know, the odd dogs don't operate in the gray area, and as soon as they understand what yes is and what no is, uh, everything falls into play pretty nicely. And if you can teach no without without leaving resentment in right. you know with the animal, then the a dog will die for you. That's what why they're the man's best friend. They'll do anything. And so, what I like to do is um, when I'm teaching in that yes and that no. Well, how good is my yes? Is it excitable? Is it fun? Is exactly. it enjoyable? What's my no like? Is my no pretty good too? Is it is it readable or do i overwhelm the learning experience by becoming a monster you know like what are you what are you leaving what mark are you leaving on your animal and i think Absolutely. That, um, yeah that's everything when it comes to trying to use a dog over a gun or or over a bow anyway you know uh, yeah having that that yes uh brings reward and so no just means find yes find a way to 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 bring that reward and so when the dog understands that that's not the behavior that uh, I'm looking for, but he's well informed of the desired behaviors uh, that bring reward, it, it falls together nicely. And you don't have to, like you said, you don't have to correct your dog into the point where he is shutting down and, and doesn't want to perform. Yeah, and I mean, I learn a lot from my dogs in that process, even with hunting or bow hunting in general. Like, we can overcomplicate everything, and we've talked a bit about that, but a dog simply learns by association. That's how they learn. If Absolutely. something happens and it's good and you say it's good, yep. then they retain it. You know, and, and hunting's no different. You can look at it the same way. That's where the value is. You know, you learn by association. You learn through trial and error and by connecting good things to both. And... You know, that's that's really, um, you know, there is no negative if you think about it that way. If you keep a positive attitude, if you continue to learn from the things that are happening around you and by, you know, everything that happens um, in your hunting, then uh, you're going to, to grow and, and stay positive. And that whole mindset just um, is worth linking yourself to and locking on to and, it's what makes dog training awesome. It's what makes bow hunting and life and in anything in general awesome, you know, just by keeping that good attitude. Well, I'm really glad we got to touch on that. I'm looking forward to having some more conversations with you about your dogs. And um, it's just super fascinating to me. 
Um, as we wrap this up, all our listeners really like to hear about equipment. So if you could uh, just kind of tell us about what your current bow and arrow and broadhead and quiver setup is and maybe how it's changed over the years, uh, that, that would be great. Sure. Um, so I'm using a Stalker Coyote. At pretty much um, predominantly, I've got a, a few other bows that make a cameo here and there, but generally I'm swinging off the Stalker uh, with a Selway Quiver. And I use a uh, micro diameter shaft for my arrow with a outback broadhead up front. Now the outback broadheads are an Australian company. They're a cut on contact uh, head. It's um, single bevel, uh, really honest, good quality sort of um, broadhead. Doesn't um, doesn't sort of fail in any way. It's built well. So my setup as far as my bow is concerned is um, is probably in the higher end of poundage for you guys. Um, my stalk is 57 pound at 28. Um, most of my bows are around that 60 pound mark or high 50s. I'm running an arrow that's sort of high 500s, around 580 to 600 grain. Now what I tend to do with my bow setup is um, I'm not fixated on uh, getting a specific arrow weight, although I do have a threshold where, you know, I want to arrow sort of five, maybe 550 to 600. That's where I want to be ideally in my mind. But my whole setup is based on trajectory. So I know uh, in my mind what I want to see in my arrow flight. I know uh, what, you know, what, over the years just shooting for a fair while now i know how i want it to look i know what my that picture needs to or that you know that scene needs to you know be i know what i want in my mind so i build an arrow that sort of works within that parameter like and i get that same flight that same trajectory every time so that i don't have to sort of worry too much between the bows that i shoot they all sort of shoot a similar trajectory in the arrow and also too i do um, get, you know, I make sure that my arrow length is the same each time. I'm, I'm not looking for just, you know, cutting the arrow past my draw length. That's not how I, I work. I want to have my arrow point um, to act as a single pin sight when I'm shooting out further. So it needs to be exactly the same length all the time so that I can get that. Um, when I say the same length, it does vary a little bit between the poundages of bows because um, I want a point on of a certain distance. So I build an arrow based off those um, those thoughts, getting getting the arrow length exactly to where I get a point on of 25 metres um, and then having that trajectory mapped out the same is really important. So my tuning process is not just about getting the arrow flying perfectly it's getting that particular um those particular measurements and guidelines in place plus having the tuned arrow at the same time and if i can do that um i feel i can go and get it done very cool i I really like that that's a great approach um i also noticed that you, you make some really cool wool hunting vests um, tell us a little bit about those and where guys can uh, uh, get those from you. And maybe, I don't know if there's any other products you make, but go ahead and tell guys where they can find you on Instagram and Facebook and where they can uh, get their hands on one of those cool vests you're making. Yeah, well, those vests were just 
my wife's a seamstress and the way we roll here our family we we're pretty much self-sufficient so we the, we only eat wild meat and we grow our veggies we buy very little and um and that's our lifestyle and and we just try and use the skills that we have in the family to get by in life and to make you know make a little bit of money and keep things ticking and with these wool vests um i just like wool we're trad guys man we love wool that's how we roll um (laughs) you know so i just absolutely yeah i just uh said to my wife danny i just said hey can you make me something and she did and it just metamorphed from there we just kept working on it and working on it and uh came up with a good design that we uh you know, patented and got sorted out and it's worked for us. And now she's just loving that. She, we're part of, you know, we make a living pretty much from that, our dogs and just this hunting lifestyle. And it's because of these bush vests that we do that have just taken off in a big way here in Australia and in New Zealand. And we're even sending, we're sending about a dozen, um, over to the U S and other places like that a month now. And, um, and yeah, so Matt Webb's Wild Harvest is um, what we float under, and that's on Instagram, on Facebook, and uh, YouTube. And I enjoy the social media side of things. I try not to take it too seriously, but being so remote where I am, it's a good way of connecting with people like yourselves and others that um, can see what we're doing, and also helps our little business. You know, helps. You know, if we do something good, or you you. You make, you know, you fill an order and you're, you're proud of your work or Danny's proud of her work with those vests. we got somewhere where we can show it and that's our avenue for doing that. And we get a lot of joy out of the lifestyle, to be honest. It's great. Uh, those, vests, those vests are awesome. I'm definitely going to have to order myself one. Uh, they, they scream traditional bow hunting for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys send me your sizes over and we'll, uh, we'll look after you. Right on, man. Um, so, yeah, I... You got anything in closing? Um, no, not really. It's just nice talking to you guys. And like I said before we started, you know what? Um, you know you've got it bad when you get up at four thirty and want to talk about bow. <laughs> you know, like what's we must? What problem have we got? <laughs> yeah. it, it, what we, we've got the we've got the bug. It's got us. You know. Yeah. I just think. Um, I just hope that our conversation came out positive from the perspective of a few of those things we spoke about, you know, I, I really stand by, um, some of those guys we spoke about, like, you know, the, especially the push boys and I think Aaron and others are just, they're just, they're doing things that, um, a little fella like me who no one knows can never do. And, and I just rate them so highly, um, for their hard work and you guys too, just it takes dedication and passion to follow through with, um, the sort of workload that comes from putting yourself out there in the public eye and uh, full credit to them. I just hope that came across okay. But I think the scales do uh, do need balancing and um, I don't mind being the, the dodgy bush hack that does that occasionally if I need to. <laughs> no, I, I think definitely those guys that we all spoke about are huge assets to our community. And, uh, you know, I think we're always thanking them and we appreciate them. Uh, for sure, but it, it is often nice to to give a reminder that there uh, is a, lots of different ways to get there, and 
and uh, to just keep it simple. Yeah, man, and like if anyone's listening that's just started to be, you know, become interested in the traditional bow, my you know, humble advice is pick it up, pull the string back, and let an arrow go, and do that as many times as you can. And when it starts to become a passion, and when you want to get better, go see these guys. You know, go 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 work on your form, go work on those those little variables, and become better at it. But just pick the bow up and start um, start flinging arrows. You know, that's the, that's the key to the equation. Awesome. Thank you so much, and. I will be having uh, dreams of down under for uh, some time now. <laughs> yeah, well, don't dream, don't, don't dream, brother. Get on a plane. Yeah. All right, awesome. Well, we'll we'll stay in touch, and thank you for the uh, great conversation. Yeah, good on you guys. You take care of yourselves. Thanks, you All too, right. Matt. See you, brother. Later. We want to thank the listeners once again. We wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you guys. Don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast. It really helps. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever your favorite podcasts are played. You can also listen to the podcast on tradquest.com. Send us an email at tradquestpodcast at gmail.com. And always, keep the wind in your face, pick a spot, and shoot straight. Frosty before the sun comes up, the geese are on the wing. The deer are fat and happy, no, they don't suspect a thing. I can't take it any longer, I've got to breathe some air. The only cure for what I've got is a week or so out there. I've got Nimrod neurosis, longbows on the brain. I'm an outdoor junkie through and through, hunts my middle name.